Well, thank you all for coming out this evening. It's a bit of a tour de force when you sit here for a whole day and listen to lectures, uh, especially when they're of a very, very dense, information-packed uh, nature. Uh, I know that can be a weariness of the flesh, and so it's a, it's a privilege to me to be able to talk to an audience that's attentive and listening, has questions to ask, so wants to engage. It's a tremendous blessing. And of course, as always, it's my honor and my privilege to come and be able to speak with you. I've tried to talk this evening on the Reformation, perhaps from a perspective you've never heard it before. Uh, certainly there's much, much more that we could talk about. There's an infinite amount of detail and every bit of it I think is fascinating from the types of perspectives of which I've been speaking. <clears throat> Someone asked me earlier that, that you know, they'd never considered all this other history. You know, it's always, oh, Martin Luther puts the theses on the door, bang, and that's it, we have a reformation. And that is the nutshell version. Uh, but there is so much more, and it directly applies to the reformed faith and how we view the kingdom of God on this earth, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but they, they asked me a little bit about the history. I will tell you, there, there are a number of good books uh, since the time that R.W. Southern wrote that quotation with which I began about how church history is so often written isolated from the rest of history. Uh, there's been a tremendous outpouring of good history and historical work written. And a couple of works since a, a couple of people have kind of inquired uh, that I have used and I think are, are pretty good. Uh, or if you want to write these down to, to, for your own studies. Um, and again, there's many more than this. Uh, Philip Schaff's church history is always good, but it's, it's dated, honestly. It's late 19th century, and he's, uh, you know, the, the whole work spans like seven volumes, so in some cases he's a bit prolix, and in other cases he's too condensed on topics. Uh, in the more modern era, there are a couple of copies, that, a couple of works I go to. One is by Carter Lindbergh. Uh, he's a fairly well-known historian of the Reformation era. Uh, his book entitled The European Reformations, plural, uh, is a good resource, only about 360 pages or so, and gets into a lot of the background, which I've discussed as well. If you want something even more detailed than that and, and at a, a little bit lengthier, more meaty kind of uh, piece of work, uh, I would say probably the best single history of the Reformation that's written is by an Anglican scholar. Unfortunately, he's not of our political or uh, social persuasion. Uh, he would probably be voting the wrong way on the upcoming. Uh, but his name is D.R. Maid McCulloch, and his book is entitled uh, The Reformation, Europe's House Divided. It's a large work, somewhere seven or 800 pages. A uh, lot of detailed background in history, a lot of social history, economic history. And just fascinating stuff. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the doctor mentioned a while ago. We, we read church history and we get the early church and there's this big leap, uh, usually to the Middle Ages, sometimes all the way to the Reformation. And wow, there's this thousand-year gap in history. And it'll surprise you to know how much stuff was actually going on in that time and how close and similar it was to what we're dealing with now. Um, the issues that we badly need today were expressed in the apostolic era, but they were also expressed at Magna Carta 
And they were expressed here in the Golden Bull in the 1300s. And they've been expressed many times throughout history. And we rob ourselves of so much when we're not informed of that stuff. And I am no expert. I'm not an historian of the Middle Ages. I pick up some of it as I go along. It's important. But uh, it's something you really, sh you really owe it to yourselves to get some basic idea of and realize we're not, we're not in such a unique position as we think we are. And really there are people that have gone before us that can provide tremendous inspiration in their uh, insight and in their courage, which is another thing greatly lacking these days. And something for which we should all pray. I've been trying to highlight these themes as I've gone through. God prepared the Reformation long before it actually happened. By the time Luther stood up and spoke, it was a foregone conclusion. No man can do this. It, when we say Soli Deo Gloria, we have to believe it about every square inch of the universe and every moment of history and every moment of our future. About every diaper you change, every dish you wash, every log you carry, every bit of manual labor you do, every time you wash your car, I mean, just the most minute things in your life is all Coram Deo. It's all part of God's plan, and hopefully I'll get to that in just a second too if I don't prattle on too long. No human could orchestrate this. This really was a matter of local jurisdiction standing up to an international empire and saying no. Now I'll propose something very radical to you. We have a little bit of this history in my country where a tiny minority of people stood up to an international empire and said no. We declare our independence. I don't know exactly you guys' history, but we have variations of that all through our history of localities that stood up and said, no, federal government, you're not coming in here. And sometimes that gets pretty tense. I wonder if some people began to think that way in this nation, what would happen? What if this uh, vote comes back the wrong way? What if legislation passes the wrong way? What would happen if a local jurisdiction which was overwhelmingly conservative, stood up and said, no. No, we don't care what your consequences will be. We don't need your funding. We'll live without it. We don't need your help. We don't need you to help with our educational system or whatever it may be. I don't know what it is. I have no insight whatsoever into Australian politics and government. But what if people were so willing to be faithful that they organized together in solidarity and stood up and said, no. And we will say no to the utmost consequences because we will not let our society in which we are all 70, 80, 90% in agreement be debauched by some top-down authority who wants to treat us like the Inquisition because that's what they're being. If I had yet a fourth talk, I'd do a whole talk on systems of law then there are only two systems of law in human history. One is top-down executive control, and that came right through ancient Rome, came through Constantine into the old church. It was foisted upon, in many ways, upon Western society through the church and through Roman Catholic society, through the Holy Roman Empire, in many ways, shapes, and forms. Islam partakes of it. And, I, and in the United States, certainly, I know throughout much of Europe and probably here too, our modern police and prison systems partake of it. 
by regulatory agencies to partake of it. They have courts that are their own courts, just like the King of England had his star chamber. It was not subject to common law, common law. it was subject to the king's whim. You were not innocent until proven guilty, you were guilty until you could prove yourself innocent and they would lock you in a dungeon until you did so. Today they may not lock you in a dungeon, they might, they may not, they may just fine you. That's one system of law. The other one is what we've inherited through the development of Christian society. Actually, it comes out of Hebrew law. It came through England in common law, and it, we, you probably share much of it here. We had much of it in the United States. We still do have some, some bits. And it is all the rights and liberties we talk about and we enjoy. I heard the gentleman earlier use the phrase, our Aussie freedoms, or was it Tassie freedoms, one of the two. Uh, we, we speak the same way in the United States, our rights and liberties. Uh, we, we often think we're unique in that regard, but we're not. It's throughout the, the areas that were colonized by the British Commonwealth at the time that it was truly ruled by common law. That was the legacy, ultimately, of Hebrew law and the Hebrew Republic. You have rights and freedoms and the government, the laws exist to restrict the government, not to regulate every aspect of your life. Okay, it's an entirely different concept of law. The two are antagonistic, they cannot dwell together. One must push out the other one and it always does eventually. If I had a whole other talk to do, I would do it strictly on that and, and have you, uh, if you're not already, well attuned to the differences between what I call Roman civil law concepts and biblical common law concepts. Uh, I think you have some resources and uh, Brother Mitchell and other people that can help you with that regard. So, uh, again, the Reformation happened because the local jurisdiction stood up for its rights and liberties and said no and was willing to suffer consequences if necessary. It happened because an individual Christian stood up with the right and duty of private judgment, come what may, and said no. And it happened because God rewards dominion in history to those who serve. Again, there's those two law systems in action. One of them is a top-down system of power and authority and control. It wants to dictate to you every area of your life. And in that system is exactly what Jesus was talking about. I'm sure he had the Roman Empire under which they lived as his immediate example for the apostles, the disciples he was talking to. They lord themselves over you. They control every area of your lives. And then they try to convince you that you are the beneficiary of some kind of great care they're providing and he says, it's not that way with my people. The greatest among you is he who serves. You will find that in many of the stories I've told here today. Dominion naturally flows to those people who serve. The people who gave of their time and effort to create a new invention to pump water out of a mine shaft caused a power shift in Europe that nobody could explain, nobody could plan, and it shifted power toward God's people, at least the protection of God's people. You can, say, you can see the same thing in medieval economics, in medieval politics. You can see the same thing. And this huge, boastful international empire didn't have answers for anything. And yet it's trying to convince the entire European continent and more 
that it was its benefactor and its mediator between them and God. It was a laughing stock. So uh, this happens, and it will happen again. And I've been talking to Ashley about this last night and some today too. That, that's good business. Someone mentioned earlier, asked about my 500-mile walk. Uh, well, it wasn't quite 500 miles, but it seemed like it when uh, two competing airlines kept running me back and forth between their desks in the Sydney airport from literally the opposite extreme of one terminal to the other, uh, which I estimate is probably about a quarter mile or a half mile walk, back and forth four full times because they can't pick up a phone and call the other one. And I'm not being sarcastic. They can't. They're, they literally cannot do that in their systems. Oh, they have a different system than we do. Okay, do they have, does their system have a phone number that your cell phone can call? I don't understand it. But anyway, so I get down there and they tell me one thing. I go back, no, that's, that's not right. You're not in our system. Back and forth, back and forth. And finally I got irate. And when, it fi when the, finally the, the manager of Qantas comes out and he says, oh, that was our error after all. We mistreated you. We're sorry. And I thought to myself, I, I don't know what the general culture's like here, but in America, that's just bad business. If you mess up that badly, you don't just say, I'm sorry. You make it right for the customer. Even if it costs you more, you serve that person and you make it right. You say, oh, here's a free voucher for your next flight. This will not happen again. If it's a restaurant, sir, your food is on us tonight. We're very sorry. Is there anything we can do to make it right? In any business, whatever, you make sure the service is above and beyond what they ever expected to make up for your error. That's good business because you're serving the customer, you're meeting their need, and they will come back. It's basic stuff, and it's based on Christian ethics, not top-down power. When you have an establishment that is usually subsidized by the government and doesn't have much competition or any fear of competition, they say, oh, sorry, see you next time. Because they don't care. There's no love in that system. It's a system of power and of fear. Nobody wants to have to report to the bureaucrat above them that there's a problem. Okay, but they're also not trained outside of a very small pericope of what their guidebook tells them they can do. I mean, there's, this talk could go on forever, talking about bureaucracy. Uh, but it really is two different systems of life. One is about power, and it lords it over, and it rules people by fear and regulation. And the other one is about ethics and about serving and loving and giving. And that's what Christ calls us to do. And I believe that's what Martin Luther was doing. I believe that's what all the people who stand up are in resistance. And more often than not, they're called rebels. And they're called the bad guys, the lone rangers, the lone wolf, mavericks. And we tend not to like those people because they cause social unrest. But more often than not, they become the heroes of the story. Heroes, quote-unquote, obviously, because the ultimate hero is the Christ whom we serve. Two things I mentioned quickly that happened in Geneva that exemplified some of these ideas. Uh, and one was their view of the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the Roman 
Catholic view at the time was that the kingdom of God is the church. Or more accurately, the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, is the kingdom of God. If you do what the Pope says, you are in God's kingdom. If you don't do what the Pope says, you will be outside of the kingdom very quickly. That was the widely accepted view. Well, when you immediately, as soon as you deny papal infallibility, what happens? That unravels that whole system. And that's what happened in Luther's debates and his writings. He thought, well, this is just about indulgences. But when you deny indulgences, you deny what the Pope says. When you deny what the Pope says, you deny papal infallibility. When you deny that, you've got to replace it with something else. So what is it? Oh, so you're saying the councils are wrong? Or you say it unravels their entire worldview. And it can happen with any point in your life. And that's why, you know, it can, it can be parenting, it can be business, it can be law, it can be economics, it can be anything. It's all interconnected and it all comes back to, do you serve Christ? <clears throat> so the reformers re-envision the kingdom of God and they have to ask the question, well then what is the kingdom of God? And they realize the kingdom of God is not synonymous with any human institution. As I said, all of the solas in the context of the Reformation come back to papal infallibility and the fact that they believe that they are a mediator between man and God. And the Bible says there is none except Christ. What does that mean for the kingdom of God? It means whoever's in Christ, that's where the kingdom of God is. That's where the kingdom of God is. This quotation from Calvin I thought was very interesting. Uh, by the way, much, much of this information is from a talk in one of Dr. Rushduni's books entitled The Politics of Guilt and Pity. And there's a chapter in there on Calvin and Geneva that talks about many of these concepts. A lot of this information is in there. It's, very, it's one of the better things that he ever wrote, and he wrote a lot of good stuff. Quote, Wherever there is righteousness and peace and spiritual joy, there the kingdom of God is, complete in all its parts. It does not then consist of material things. And when Calvin says it doesn't consist of material things, he's not saying that economics and money and institutions and all those things can't be a part of the kingdom of God. What he's simply saying is that's not where it's lodged at. That's not the center of it. That's not our focus. The kingdom of God is the work of the spirit in the hearts of men, and it produces all of those works. And when it does produce them, it will be faithful to him and not in the form of tyranny. I love this explanation that Rush Juni provides, and I don't uh, quote uh, these other people very often, but this one was uh, just golden. Quote, the kingdom of God is thus the presence or activity of God wherever found. And that presence or activity is pure grace totally unrelated to the works or will of man, and eternity is its origin and motive. Again, it is a kingdom of pure grace, holy, eschatological, never institutional or historical. Okay? We don't look to the institutional church and its ministry to say, oh, that's where the kingdom of God is. Because that's the works of man. It may be highly express, expressive of the Spirit. It may be faithful. But that's not where we look to define what is the kingdom of God. It is always dependent on the work of the Spirit. And so it may be coming through the pulpit. 
But it might also be coming through your private Bible reading. It might be coming through discussions with friends over coffee. It may be coming again in your parenting, in, in, in sleepless nights with an infant. It is the service and the giving and the mind of Christ where people sacrifice and give of themselves to better others. There is the kingdom of God. And we're doing anything else besides those things. It's not the kingdom of God. Very simple. I wish I had time to give a whole talk on that. But it has ramifications for all of life. Economics. In those Middle Ages under the Catholic Church, like I said, they were intricately involved in all aspects of the economy. They tried to run the businesses. They tried to run... Uh, they tried to tell people what a just price for things was. They tried to say how much interest you could loan, you could lend for, and a whole range of issues. Every little detail of everybody's life, and of course your personal life, again, marriage, uh, families, your, your inheritances, uh, divorce, whatever it may be, every little detail of your life. The church said, if you're in the kingdom of God, that is sacred, and it now becomes the purview of the church and the regulation of the ministry. And when the reformers come and say, no, this is not a mediatorial institution, it blows all of that out of the water. And it throws it into the realm of the Spirit. And the individual conscience of the Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God in service to Christ. And suddenly you, you realize, at first it's kind of scary. Because you, when you get used to all these guidelines and people telling you how to live and you don't question it, you begin to think like a slave. That is the slave mentality. And when that's taken away, and that's all you're used to, it's frightening. Because now I have the right and the duty to stand before God in my own conscience and do what's right. I have to learn. I have to develop. I have to grow. I have to mature. That can be a scary, frightening thing. And it's certainly frightening in whole societies that have become dictated by modern governments. They're literally afraid of liberty. And part of our job as Christians is to show them that you can be free without having to steal from your neighbor or without having to do all the things that people are afraid are going to happen if we get rid of government controls. That we actually will take care of the poor if you just free us up to do it. We don't need a government safety net or a government program, okay? And things of that nature, again, whole talk. The individual led by the Holy Spirit is the primary area of responsibility in a Christian society. It becomes the locus of mercy, or the locus of justice, the locus of good works and charity and every good thing. And fallen man literally rebels against all of that because the fallen man's primary motivation is fear. I mean, go back to John. I think I talked about this last year when I was here, the, the, the law and love and the, the comments in the first epistle of John. It's just phenomenal how simple it is and yet how profound. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. But the fallen man is ruled and governed by those fears. 
And you can see it in the beginning of the Bible when Cain is kicked out and sent on his way after the murder of his brother. God spares his life, but he places a mark upon him. Cain's first instinct is to fear. God, I can't go out there. Somebody's going to kill me. I'm a marked man. And God says, no, I'll place this mark upon you and no one will kill you. And he still lives with guilt and fear. He can't escape it because he has no savior. He's denied him. And the first thing he does is he goes out and he builds a walled city. But, but man is created to be God's image. And so all the things God created us for in, in Christian liberty, the fallen man mimics all of those in a fallen way. He, he wants dominion, but he doesn't know what godly dominion and love and service is. So he does it in the only way he knows how. Fear, uh, um, top-down power, and conquest. And you see this directly. The line of Cain's children, they all become great, powerful men. But they become more immoral as they go. Until you get down to Lamech, Lamech and he says what? He says, well, if uh, Cain will be avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged seventyfold. And he kills a man. And then he brags about having done it. I'm greater than Cain. Look at my legacy. Look at my city. And then the next thing you have Nimrod and battle. And people are trying to make a name for themselves. And you can see this if you compare the fallen man and the fallen nature to the solas of the Reformation. You see just literally just the opposite of everything the Reformation stood for. Sola scriptura, no, they don't want the word of God. They want the word of man. Fallen man, you can see this in leftist humanism and modern governments all over the place. It's salvation by legislation. And if, if you don't bend, we will force you to bend. We will regulate you out of existence. We will fine you to death. We'll find some penal way to make you bend to our word. They don't want freedom. They want control. Sola Scriptura. Do they believe that there's one, man, one mediator between man and God? No, they believe they are God. And they believe they are the mediator between man and God. So they create all kinds of mediating institutions. Bureaucracies, educational institutions, uh, media, arts, entertainment, programs, over and over and over to bombard you with their view of things. And to force you to believe that if you don't conform, you're a social outcast and a rebel and you don't belong here. Yes, they believe in mediators. They are the mediators. Justification is by works. If you don't do our legislation, we will punish you. In many ways, just like I said earlier, it is the modern inquisition because it's the exact same system of the exact same product of the exact same source, the fallen human heart. The Roman Catholic Church was not any unique agency in history. It was just one more example of fallen human empire. The modern humanistic state is the exact same thing. The Islamic state is the exact same thing. They may have different names, but it's the exact same thing. And the Reformation blows it all out of the water. That's a good British naval term, by the way. There are no mediatorial institutions in history. There's one mediator. 
the man Christ Jesus. Soli Deo Gloria means, dear government, no. You don't exist as a mediator. You don't tell us how to live our lives. The role of institutions in history is not mediatorial. It is supposed to be ministerial. Where they exist, if it's a school, if it's a government, whatever it may be, it is there to serve in its God-given capacity, to sacrifice and to give. If leaders are not doing that, they're not leaders. They're tyrants. The purpose of institutions in history is not to justify man, but rather to assert the coming of the one who does justify. And this naturally leads to the reform doctrine that was developed later by Abraham Kuyper and others of sphere sovereignty. That no man, no institution in history has ultimate jurisdiction over any area of life. In, in fact, it ought to be as decentralized as possible. And that would be the mark of a Christian society because it means you have as many people as possible, as filled with the Spirit as possible, and as developed as Christianly, uh, in, in Christian maturity as possible. That is the goal. But instead, so often today in our Christian culture, uh, we take this very limited view of what the church is, of what Christian, the kingdom of God is, what Christian society is, even if, if we even have a doctrine of Christian society. I was struck again by this quote near the end of Rush Dooney's chapter. Looking back on everything he's written, he confesses this, Calvinism, whose main activity has often been limited to a defense of Scripture, needs anew to launch forth the fullness of Scripture. And I see that so intensely today among so many of my Reformed brethren. They could give you a detailed defense of the text of Scripture, that it is inspired by God. And that's a great and wonderful thing, very needed. But then they'll spend their entire life on it. They'll spend an entire career on textual analysis or some intricacies of the text of Scripture. And it's almost like this, the modern Christian view, the modern Christianity has become ingrown and insular and, and, and inward looking upon itself. It's not taking the great doctrines that have been taught by the Bible and applying them to all areas of life. Uh, it becomes very limited. So, uh, that's a tremendous problem. We need to quit looking at the church as this very limited thing and look at it in the much broader view that I've discussed. You were saying about time? A couple more minutes? Five? Five minutes. Five minutes, okay. Uh, let's just consider some of these legacies of the Reformation in closing here. When we consider sola scriptura, we're talking about the role of God's word. When Luther said it, he had to respond to this issue of papal infallibility. 
But as I think I've made clear here, that papal infallibility was just one expression of that. Today what we have is human infallibility or something of that nature. In Islam, it's the infallibility of Muhammad. It could be anything that's set up as a rival word of authority against Christ. And the churches need to recover sola scriptura, not just in the, the pulpit and for your personal salvation, but for every area of life. When we come to the issue of sola gratia, we realize that there is no mediator between man and Christ, or man and God, except for Christ. And we need to quit thinking of all these human institutions as things that are there to save us and help us. No, they're there to serve us under God's law, in His kingdom, not as His kingdom. And one of the outcomes of that also was the concept that suddenly all of life becomes an area of God's activity. Really in the Reformed faith, and, and, and I've been in secular classes on Western civilization and heard this come through, that the only thing they get from Calvin is that he, he uh, created this idea of godly vocations. And suddenly all of the artisans and craftsmen, workers and miners and laborers suddenly viewed what they do not as this drudgery on their way to get to heaven, but rather as a godly gifting and calling to be used for his glory. And suddenly it lifted tremendous burdens and gave dignity to human work in every area. Gave direction and inspiration and all kinds of things. And, uh, in, you know, entire lines of thought and books have come out of that. Uh, it's a great thing to think about. It's amazing what happens when you get this behemoth of an institution off of people's backs. Where they're not spending all of their free time in wasted prayers to Mary, trying to gain merits in order to get into heaven. Or doing these fantastic penances Suddenly their free time, if you want to call it that, is open to them to be used to glorify God. And they can work more. They can spend more time with their wives. They can develop their relationships. They can study scripture. And there's just so many things you can do when that time is freed up. The secular and, or the secular and sacred dichotomy uh, that existed at the threshold of the church door completely obliterated completely different view of what the church is. No longer do uh, we have to have a church that's literally open 24 hours a day. You know, that's a, like a Roman Catholic thing, certainly it was in the Middle Ages, that if this is the place you have to go to find mediation to God, then it's mandatory that this building be open and accessible at all times for all people. The Protestant view says, no. In fact, it's kind of in an odd way, it's the opposite. We come to church on Sunday, we do our corporate worship, that's great, it's wonderful, it's helpful, it's, there's a blessing there, and then we lock the door and go home. Yeah, I know the pastor might be in his office during the week, there, there's some exception there, but in general, it is not 
come here to get saved. It's get out of here and go practice what you've learned. Go apply it to your job and your business, etc. A uh, completely different view of what church is because the church is not what happens when the four walls on Sunday. The church is you. You are the temple of God filled with the Holy Spirit built of lively stones. You are the lively stone. You are the living temple. And it spreads over the entire globe. It's just a glorious imagery. And when we come to Soli Deo Gloria, again, God gets the glory in everything, but that means God must get the glory in everything, in all areas of life, in all the things you do. When we think of the Reformation, we need to think of it in those terms. God prepared it centuries in advance of Luther nailing those theses on the door. And he did it through very mundane things that would become very monumental at a later time through, again, miners, bankers, etc. And he at the end of the Reformation, we look back and say, wow, this freed up our view of what godly vocation really is. Suddenly, we have a different view of those miners and those bankers. And, you know, they may not as individuals have been Christians, but the vocation itself we now see within the area of God's redeemed activity. And we want it to be used to glorify Him. So I appreciate you coming out this evening and during these long historical talks, some of them tedious and I hope to put some of this material in print form in the future, and when I do, it'll be available in PDF and widely distributed, I'm sure. So uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your patience. And uh, I think we want to ask some questions. Or we'll do a, we'll do a uh, question and answers. I think uh, Joel deserves a round of applause.